New Models is a pro-complexity media outlet that examines how digital structures are shaping art, tech, politics, and pop culture. On this episode, we speak with Jenny O'Dell, artist, writer, and lecturer of internet art at Stanford University in Palo Alto. She is also the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which was published this week by Melville House Books. We first learned about Jenny's work when we came across a long-form New York Times piece she penned last fall on the chains of fraudulent e-commerce that line retail aggregators such as Amazon and Alibaba. Titled A Business With No End, the essay leads the reader into a seeming black hole of seller profiles, sham LLCs, and odd consumer product descriptions before delivering the reader to a correlating bizarre and fully concrete footprint in the physical world. In her new book, which is as literary as it is analytical, Jenny draws from the physical ecosystem of the Bay Area to orient her critique of contemporary platform protocol, grounding it in spatial and temporal context. I'm host and engineer, Lil Internet, joined by New Models founder Caroline Busta and artist Daniel Keller. Here's our episode with Jenny O'Dell. As you're an artist, you're also a professor of art and art theory or cultural theory. And I loved how in even just your bio, you talk about your medium being context. In a time of widespread context collapse, of course, this is a very important thing to be producing if one is producing any kind of object form, in quotes. But I wonder, could you tell us just a little bit about what that means for you? Yeah, I mean, I think context is really interesting as a kind of product of attention, like amount of attention. So like the longer you spend looking at something, like you're only going to get more context. And so it makes sense that in a time of shortening attention spans, people are seeking less context. And I think my perspective on it, you know, is coming from, you know, having an artistic practice that is almost more about context than the actual thing itself. So I feel like, you know, positioned to think about the importance of context. So like as a weird example, I used to work for a really big corporation, like a clothing corporation that had like a sort of like staging area where they would get all their samples. So basically like a fake store (laughs) and they would put, you know, everything in this fake store where it's eventually going to be in all of the stores in North America. And my job was to go in there and take photos of all of these like parts of the, the store. And so I had this like experience of seeing boxes of samples coming from, you know, like Sri Lanka or something, getting taken out of the box, folded a certain way, put on a table, and now it's $50. And like, we all know that that happens, right? But it's very different to actually see it in front of you. And my whole job was about put this shirt here, you know, put these pants here, so that like when someone walks in, they see it and they have this idea of like what these pants are. And so when I was an artist in residence at the dump uh, (laughs) a couple years ago. That's really what it's um, called. Yeah, in San Francisco, they have this great artist residency. And my project was actually really influenced by that early experience where I was like, oh, okay, if I take these things out of the dump and research where they were made and find all this information about them and 
I mean, every object has a crazy story behind it, honestly, and then arranged them in this way that actually looked a lot like the fake store that I worked in. It totally manipulates how people, you know, interact with the objects. I mean, that's like Duchamp, right? It's like the urinal in the gallery. But on top of putting it in that setting, also like adding all this information and research to it so that someone really wants to sit with like one object at a time and, and kind of like go deep on that, like one object after another. It sounds like Art Basel. (laughs) 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 One thing, though, I thought that was interesting about reading about that project is, of course, it also gives people the awareness of the full cycle from manufacturing to disposal and being unwanted because you you researched all of even the manufacturing practices materials where it was made and everything right so it was kind of like this hyper context for objects that people normally just consume and toss yeah i mean it's i (laughs) i have maybe a problem with like going overboard on research as maybe you can tell from the time piece but when i was at the dump you know this three-month residency I did not see anybody because I was just like, you know, it's 200 objects and each one I would Google, you know, I call it endurance Googling. (laughs) Um, You're used to like Googling something and you either do or do not find the answer. But I would Google things for days. And then on day three, I would find something, you know, that like maybe it's just a number, but it's like something that leads to something else that leads to something else. So there's definitely like a monomaniacal character to the to the whole project that's not entirely voluntary. I think that's just like maybe what I do. But I did think it was interesting before that I had done a bunch of visual work about infrastructure, you know, like oil refineries and wastewater treatment plants. And I was running up against this problem, which is that it's really hard to visually represent a network because, for instance, like if I'm taking imagery of an oil refinery from Google Earth and I'm isolating it or cutting it out, which is what I used to do, at what point do you cut that off? Like, do you include the cars of the employees who work there? How far out do you trace these pipelines, right? Like, it's connected to all these other things. And so it's sort of like inadequate to try to isolate this one thing or try to represent the network in that way. So I found that with the dump, I was trying to instead use one object as kind of like a prism through which like you can see all of these different, you know, manufacturing processes and corporate histories and consumer desires all kind of refracted in one object and then you move on to the next and you see it refracted again and you move on to the next one. So it's kind of a different approach to representing networks. It, it reminds me of this um this scheme that that actually the VP of engineering at the Seasteading uh, Foundation, this Russian guy, Igor, and he had this plan to yeah. tokenize trash and he wanted to make a, a blockchain for trash. And basically you would go around and take pictures of little fragments of trash and somehow through magic of technology, they'd be able to find do all the research and find the manufacturer. And it would basically be some sort of like extremely granular recycling program in the blockchain. It's completely harebrained, but I, I like the audacity of it sort of. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think also just the widening of scope for people to understand all of the, what goes into this full manufacturing process. And once you're actually aware of the scope of global manufacturing, every item starts to carry uh, a, a lot more data than it, it would normally. Yeah, I like how your project seems to reveal these other economies, which, you know, should be parallel to just the symbolic yeah also i don't know have, have you heard about the museum of capitalism no i have no, uh, no I, have I don't not. think so tell <laughs> so it was, it was i was reminded of it because it's a project that two two of my friends basically are still running which actually that's the story i can talk about that separately but they have another project called true cost market 
which was like this idea for a market where everything has its true cost. Right. Like, you know, in front of it. Yeah. Um, which really is kind good. of like what you're talking about. I mean, it's also just like that we're thinking about it in a one dimensional terms of economics. But if we had like currency, like a caloric based right, exactly. currency, that would be a yeah. much more yeah. yeah reasonable way of looking at things for sure. Literally just a caloric. Right. But also, but even if you, of... even that is also too reductivist because right. then it's ignoring social kind of totally, things. So that's you true, could have a true. caloric with some kind of numeric social factor, social factor which yeah. is like inherently not something you could do, then that would yeah. be a better <laughs> system, I think. Yeah. All right. Can I just plug this one documentary called Mardi Gras Made in China? Do have you yeah. seen it? No, I haven't. Oh. What is this? Oh my God. It's so good. It's uh, a documentary where the filmmakers go to a place in China where Mardi Gras beads, like the plastic shiny ones, um, are manufactured. And they kind of get like unprecedented access to this factory because the factory owner thinks he's sort of being like flattered. Like he thinks the documentary is like a feature about his factory. So he's kind of like, he's like a Michael Scott from The Office of like this factory. (laughs) And then they're, like, asking these women, like, do you even know what these are for? And they're, like, no. And then they go back to Mardi Gras and they show people at Mardi Gras footage of these women, like, making the beads, which is, like, way more labor-intensive than you would think. And then they take that video and they show it to the women in the factory. It's just, like, <laughs> wow, like total, like, you know, it's, like, the thing that I, I've, like, I keep trying to do as an artist, which is like take the thing that is abstracted away and the thing that's right in front of you that is connected and just like mush them together in a way that's very obvious and palpable. And they totally did that in that film. That sounds interesting. I remember there's also, there's one town in China or one city in China where all of the Christmas stuff is made in the world, basically, which I love the idea of like, yeah, the Christmas village, I don't know, somewhere in or like South glitter, I hear is like this, you know, glitter because it's like really, you know, it's this thing that's like plastic or metal and is like very hard to break down. Yeah. And how it's this thing that signifies, you know, happiness and fun. Right. But it's kind of disgorge from its beginning of its production to the impossibility yeah. of containing it later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, some statistic that we, I think we manufacture 500 billion straws a year. 500 yeah. billion. Stra- you see your pro straw ban, is what you're saying? I mean, that's a lot of straws. Yeah, that's a it lot is of- a lot of straws. <laughs> There's really no need for them. No. But, Julian, you might differ. Um, you love straws. But I'll, I'll use a metal straw or yeah. any other. Uh, oh, wooden straws deep, are more. That's deep adaptation is just switching. To wooden straws. Wooden straws. Yeah. yeah, I think I like wooden straws because they, they kind of retain the memory of every beverage you've sipped. Did a wooden there. straw just even a, work? Just a yeah. bit. Yes, yes, Those it paper would straws? Ooh, oh, no. Paper straws, just that is not a no, good look. Wooden straws. That's uh, my new startup. i think we first i mean the background story of this podcast i think is that we first we read your the am the amazon piece called a business with no end if i remember correctly the message of that piece was ultimately just like some like borgesian labyrinth of like bots and reviews and fake products and cults but then um i think it was a piece about your book how to do nothing resisting the attention economy that we reached out about to do to do this piece was there any overlap between these two works though for you in terms of research or thematics yeah so there's one really big one which is there's a paragraph at the end of the of the amazon piece where i talk about standing in this bookstore that is not really technically a front but is sort of reverse engineered by needing to legitimize these weird online businesses and it's like selling all of these products that are i trademarked by, you know, people that I, at that point in the article, realized they're all connected. And it's sort of this, like, dizzying and very disorienting experience. And that that doesn't really make sense in the most 
sense way of that, you know, that word to me as a human body in like time and space that usually recognizes a certain order of events or circumstances that are just like totally mixed together in this case. And so I feel like both that's commenting on something that I feel like the book came out of, which was this almost like not despairing, but just kind of like this moment of crisis that I was having and I was observing and people around me in terms of like making sense of things around us and especially information and how we were getting the information that it was causing this new kind of disorienting that takes a lot of sort of time and attention to start to disentangle and and try to find ways of addressing. So maybe it's helpful to mention there is a quote. It's not in anywhere in my book, but it's been in every single artist talk I've ever given. <laughs> and I think it was in my application to grad school, <laughs> but it's from the Frederick Jameson book on postmodernism and basically says that it would be an interesting and useful thing to try to orient the subject in the space of global capitalism. And then kind of in the same breath, he says, I don't know what that would look like because you're talking about representing the unrepresentable. And so I kind of read it like very early on as this kind of open question and kind of without realizing it, I've always been headed in that direction of like trying to orient myself and or the reader viewer in this space, which I recognize similarly is kind of an impossible project. But a lot of what I do and think about comes out of a desire to address that problem. Well, there's definitely a feel where you're engaging with complexity, understanding that there are too many threads to probably disentangle everything. But like, let me at least sketch for you a path through this. But an acknowledgement, whereas like often in TED Talk zones or whatever, it's made so simple that you walk away thinking you understand a problem better, Mm -hmm. but like actually Mm -hmm. you understand a way of data chunking it so you don't have to deal with its like sticky complexity, you know, which is where the exploitation happens. And instead you're like, I'm going to give you as good of a pathway through this as I can. It will be incomplete, but at least I'm going to try to hit a number of different registers along the way. So I appreciate that attempt to navigate, even if like, yeah, you, you like what coordinates could one give in this kind of a space? Well, okay, I'll try. Like, I'm going to sketch with coordinates. Or even just, I think, the realization that it's not just generic disorientation. It has to do specifically, I think, with physical attributes or metaphors from time and space. And those are things that we experience, again, as a body and as a, a person, you know, with a life who moves through space. And so I think that's something that I talk about a lot, especially at the end of the book, that a lot of the things that I find troubling and dissatisfying about commercial social media actually boil down to lack of spatial and temporal context. Absolutely. Um, so ways that we evolve to understand things like my, my counter example to information online is bird watching. There's a lot of bird watching in this book, but the fact that if I know where I am and I know what time of year it is, I have a way better chance of understanding if I see like a yellow bird, there's not that many yellow birds that it could be if it's like say March and I'm in Oakland. And it's the year 2019, not the year 2025, yeah. when those bird patterns may yeah. be totally different. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. So the importance of what is adjacent or that informed what you're looking at in just understanding that at all and why, why you're even looking at it in the first place. Like, think about the amount of information that you receive online that you didn't even ask for, not in an order that makes sense, not at a time that would make sense for you to be looking at it. Like everything is totally asynchronous um, and aspatial in a way. Um, and so and I think that that's why it was important for the Amazon piece to be written from the point of view of a person who is trying to 
figure this out and then goes to the store and feels confused as a person. But uh, yeah, just talking about the feed specifically and the fact that they have like made the choice to make it more as- asynchronous, I wonder if there is some business mentality. What is the actual reasoning behind that? Does that increase engagement? Is there yeah. something about the confusion that makes you more susceptible to advertising? I mean, what exactly is it that's desirable about putting us into that state? Because it, cause it is seemingly, uh, it's, it's a willful decision. Yeah. Do you have thoughts yeah. on that? I have no idea if there's like some task force inside you know, these tech companies like trying to figure out how to make it the most disorienting experience possible. I sort of doubt it, but I also think that may, they may have just sort of naturally figured out that if like this, what I'm describing, the sort of like everything flying at you out of context keeps you on your toes and makes you want to constantly check back in to see if you've missed something or just kind of keeps you in a state of heightened anxiety, kind of. It just so happens that that is very good for business if your business is trying to get people to be engaged all the time. Right. Like when you log on to Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you're like, okay, I know the Mueller report just came out. Where's the news about that right now? What are people thinking about that right now? But instead, I'm I'm suggested 35 tweets on things that people have looked at in the past 48 hours. And then there's this feeling of just trying to find the biorhythm of your friends. And not to say that any version of these platforms was qualitatively necessarily better than any other. But I do remember this experience when when we started first using Instagram, God, six, seven, eight, however long, years ago, when there'd be like a sunset in New York. And and I was working Mm -hmm. in a cubicle with Out of You out the window. And I remember like, you know, checking Instagram and just seeing this like spread of sunsets and having this sense of at least like a shared sense of time and place or the idea that your friends in LA are posting the night before when you wake up and like sort of knowing that even though you're in these different parts of the world that's what they're doing right now and now that we've lost that that does yeah. feel like one more one more peg of disorientation I mean, there used to be I remember on Instagram you could get to the end of right. the oh, new of, of the new photos true. which that's is true. like I mean oh, it, it so seems okay. like a crazy thought now that you there's an end of this of the of the scrolling but yeah just like a loss of direction a loss of temporality a loss of loss of place a loss of time and you speak about this at length in your book also um about but you are you also had some thoughts on this i mean i I, one quote i think it was described as just the arms rates of urgency that social media environment makes you constantly feel which of course kind of ties in too to this total reductionism the only effective opinions fit in 280 characters um obviously that's not enough to explore anything complex or nuanced and then there's kind of this imperative to act or respond immediately, which also leaves less time for building out any sort of thorough, complex understanding of anything. And you also talk about uh, the sort of uh, amnesiac present. And I think this sort of total loss of, of time is a really important aspect of, of how these platforms operate. I mean, you even mentioned Mike Cernovich, who I hate speaking his name. I feel like it's like uh, Beetlejuice or something. Like, like, you know, ultimately, though, right, we, we start to think of everything as this kind of like fog of an eternal present from which uh, anything can be grabbed and then judged in the context of now. Totally what we're getting into though is ultimately, if an idea can't be expressed in a meme, it's worthless on these platforms. Right. And that's like a bit scary because you you see certain groups of activists or certain types of discourse that now really do follow these sort of either or simplistic absolutist binaries. And it's expected for you instantly to 
choose A or B at any moment. Right. And, yeah. and a pressure to respond or say something all the time. I mean, I re- remember for us after Christchurch, we like, we're like, wait, like we need to like not say anything for a bit. We right. need to like let this set in and, and watch. But you almost feel like, are people going to be judging us? Or for you think you do not care if you don't say anything? Right. Like people like DM'd us and they were right. like, like, like you haven't posted anything on Christchurch. Like you guys know this happened. We're like we do, and we also don't have anything that we can add to this conversation right now that we feel is meaningful. Nor is there any one signal that we feel we can get behind and amplify in good faith. So we're just gonna wait. It's fine. Like we're gonna wait till the details of this shake out and we've had a chance to process it. I mean, same thing with the Mueller report. Like. Right. Let's just wait and actually, yeah. like, wait till it shakes yeah. out. Yeah, and, like, you're totally doing everyone a favor, actually. The last chapter of my book, I, I kind of talk more about this, the problems for activism that are caused by the, the spatial and temporal context collapse. And there's a really great paper by Veronica Barassi, where she interviews activists in Spain on how social media sort of worked or didn't work for them. And her essay is specifically about time. I think the subtitle is even the time for democracy or something. You know, one of them is quoted as basically saying there's no actual obvious censorship online, but there's a different kind of censorship, which is getting drowned out by everyone else. And so, like, if everyone is saying everything all the time, then it's its own form of censorship in a way for someone who's trying to say something. And then they also mention that within a movement, like, discourse takes time. And we know this from the history of activism. And, like, they sort of feel like they no longer have that time. And that the only times when social media sort of did work for them was when it allowed them to all, surprise, surprise, meet in physical time and space <laughs> right. or start a magazine or like these kind of forms of slower media. Right. And so it's like it comes back always to the same needing to be in a room with other people. Like it just to me, it's like that is the that's like the absolute unit <laughs> of activism in a way, it's like yeah. very threatened by any kind of attempted substitution for that. And then even more so if the attempted substitution is actually destroying the time that you would need um, and the context that you would need. I also, you know, I was just thinking about this. You know, there's a like button, but there's no sort of like button. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, like, um, I, like, I was talking to my friend yesterday about how I think it's important to be friends with people that you disagree with. Yeah. And obviously, if you're friends, that, that implies that you have a baseline respect for each other. So obviously there's lots of people that you, you know, can't be friends with, but like I, I have friends who are very into like technological progress and like know that I'm very not into technological progress. And actually because we know that about each other, we can have really interesting conversations and learn things from each other that, you know, like I'm not going to learn from my like art scene or whatever, where everyone sort of has the same opinion about that. And I think it's just like kind of good practice. It's like the same thing as like reading a book critically, right? It's like, I'll take some of this, but I'm not going to take all of it. And it's like, why don't we have a version of that online? It's like, I either, you know, I like it or I don't. I follow this account or I don't. Totally. Um, and then someone always has like a pithy comeback to someone's tweet and whichever one has more likes is the one that won. You know, it's like so simplistic. <laughs> or like, you know, guilt by hyperlink. You know, sure. you're there as an institution. If you follow X account, it's going to be screenshotted by somebody else as proof that you actually have are open to fascist yeah. or there's real yeah. insanity about this. Yeah, now. no, there's, there's, there's a point now where like it's, it's not just the content that you're being policed for. It's actually the metadata, but it's not like the NSA looking at your metadata. It's just other people. And that is, yeah, yeah, seemingly, I think, really accepted by at least some 
you know, some radical people uh, where, yeah, and I think what's interesting is also sort of like the permanence of the idea of cancellation, but then, the, of course, the amnesiac presence. And like, we really have right. not figured out how long does a how long does canceling last? Actually, yeah, right. um, is it permanent? Yeah. I mean, we do need to make a infrastructure for forgiveness. Um, we don't really right. know totally. what is forgivable now anymore. I have one other recommendation. Uh, there's a book that and I'm, I'm mentioning it because it's not anywhere in my book, but it totally informed a lot of it. But it's this book called Conflict is Not Abuse. Oh, oh yeah. Sarah Shulman. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So it so beautifully articulates this problem. Um, totally. Like what do you, yeah. what it, a system without uh, space for forgiveness is like unsustainable. And just like the perpetrator victim model being this product of like Reagan Thatcher neoliberalism where like society, like problems aren't systemic, problems are the individuals. Either they're guilty of something or they're victim of something. It's yeah. not a community problem, it's an individual problem. And like mm-hmm. that seems to be at the core of so much of the toxicity of our discourse right now. And also what, yeah, Chantal Mouffe's agonism versus antagonism, I think, right. kind of fits into this where, I mean, agonism can be extremely constructive, but there isn't any room for it. It's all antagonism now, I think, in the online space, right? Which tends yeah. to fuel the attention economy and it's kind of more beneficial for that. Um, but uh, but I, wanted to, I wanted to push you a bit, not as a, my own beliefs, but as devil's advocate here in terms of you know, reaching out or kind of uh, befriending people who don't share your beliefs. And also something about in your book where you kind of talk about the famous Greek uh, origin troll uh, Diogenes, um, talking about how effective humor is and over-identification. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you if, you know, is there something too taboo to reach out to? Like, can you befriend the Nazi? Obviously, I can't be friends with someone who doesn't think I should be alive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there there has to be a limit, right? Um, But then I think humor is a really, that's a really tough one. And actually, my boyfriend is a a humor writer um, and thinks a lot about comedy. And we actually talk about this a lot where it's like, okay, yes, like there are some things that are, or maybe should be taboo, but then you also have a problem of like a totally humorless, like literal understanding of everything. Right. That is very, that's very like trigger happy, where suddenly like satire becomes really dangerous or something. Um, And that doesn't seem good either. And that's a, a case where I think definitely not cut and dried. And it's also another place where context becomes important, where you would want someone to sort of sit down with us and say, you know, like, okay, what is this joke? Who is it at the expense of? Uh, Is it kind of paying its way as a joke? You know what I mean? Like, does it do enough as satire to sort of justify maybe some of the more harmful aspects of it? And and just also just accepting that that will be a a complicated question and being willing to sit with that complication. I like that framework of a joke paying its way. I feel like some activists have kind of, they've started almost mimicking the way the platforms operate in terms of everything being run on a set of code. And even taking the platform's own metrics and treating them as a sort of code set of real human interaction, for instance, a like as in a, a literal endorsement of an idea or a follow yeah, like a or and and to me i, I think uh, there's an overarching trend that worries me and this is in my notes from reading your book i'm not sure it's in your book or something i thought of while reading it but tribalism 
today, it's not really identifying with a human group. Like, you don't visualize a group of individual human beings when you think about your tribe. You more think about a set of code that you uh, also have... You mean like style, language, references? An operating system. Yeah, an operating system, ultimately, that you associate with. And the tribe was really the operating system, not a tribe of humans as if you were to visualize mm, a right. group of human beings. A lunch table in high school. Right. Or and and I yeah. I mean I feel like there's this slide towards thinking more and more computationally. More and more in if X then Y statements mm-hmm. and uh, with all the reductionism that follows. First of all, I totally agree. And I think it's not just the code, but I find increasingly it's like an aesthetics, which really worries me. So it's sort of like what you would find in like a scene, but like writ large. Uh-huh. And so as an example, I, one weekend after another, I went to two conferences that were completely on the opposite, opposite ends of the spectrum, like of politically, right? So one was the sort of like unabashedly techno-libertarian conference, which I still don't know why I was invited to. And then the other one, <laughs> the other one was a just well-established environmentalist conference. And they were both in the Bay Area, which is not, no surprise because that basically describes the Bay Area <laughs> right there. Yeah, totally. Um, and I noticed, okay, so at the first conference, the, the way people dressed was very consistent. So it was like describe that lots of hoodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, lots of hoodies, like muted colors. Uh, it was like totally sticking out. And everything was in Helvetica bold. There was no music. Um, the food was, there was always steak. Um, <laughs> they're very into the hyper carnivore yeah. diet I, yeah. it's such a cluster so now crazy. yeah meat space, yeah. Really yeah. Meat space. <laughs> yeah yeah okay so that's and that's saying nothing of like the actual like you know content right then you go to the other conference everything's in papyrus font. <laughs> um, yes <laughs> everyone's wearing like very colorful like flowy pattern clothing there's like five different musicians like someone's like you know playing a sitar or something <laughs> you know the food's all like you know farm farm to table you know. and and yet there were weird there were some commonalities like both conferences had sessions on psychedelics <laughs> right. oh um, burning man we're well, this is together. i think this is the silicon valley ideology yeah. right yeah. here basically <laughs> right. Because, like, because one is is a sort of like psychedelics as as a, a mind hack and the other one is psychedelics is like being one with the grass. Yeah. Um, right. But they're both, you know, like trying to sort of liberate themselves from something using psychedelics. But I just, I came away from that thinking like, I mean, it's a commonplace that like for a lot of people, politics is like a fashion choice, right? <laughs> but, but this was like, literally it was a fashion choice. It's like, which one, which one did you grow up closer to? Or which one has more people in it that you're friends with? Or like, right. which one appeals to you aesthetically more than the other? It's not like a real decision about the values of these, of either system, you well, know? I mean, I think, you know, to sort of synthesize that with the previous question about like, can you like, can you be friends with somebody? Can you talk to somebody? The decision seems to not be coming from somebody sitting with themselves and being like, I think if I have a conversation with this person who doesn't think I should be alive, it's not going to be that productive in the long run and sort of, you know, weighing that versus someone thinking about the optics. What will it look like if Mm -hmm. I have a conversation with someone? Do I want that as part of my feed or not? Do I want that as part of my like spectrum of activity or not? So 
It seems like this quantitative thinking is what is dictating what our life choices are more than it coming from some place of, hmm, as an individual who has this kind of life, I'd be curious to know what that person thinks. And so that reversal, letting the, I mean, I, I always come back to this. You were like 2012, Mayan apocalypse, right? Like it's actually, it wasn't so much like the end of the world, but an end of humans uploading information to the cloud or to the internet or whatever. And instead, humans starting to take direction from whatever information systems or protocol systems are in place. Yeah, it was a reversal of flow reversal from... Of flow that was the pole up, shift? It was yes, download, that was the mind apocalypse, was that we started, we yeah. stopped uploading to the internet and started downloading from the internet. Being directed like the, It's just by, a primacy yeah. shift. Yeah. That makes a lot I also, I mean, I think maybe we actually could shift to bioregionalism now because I do yeah. think, um, yeah, like I was thinking also about birds and like endemic species and the sort of the and need for the these distinct spaces for differences to form. And with the platforms, yeah, there's so much sort of incentive to fall in line with one of these tribes or the other. But I just wonder how it relates, you think, if that does it relate to bioregionalism? Yeah. Um, so something that I think is that bioregionalism models really nicely is this idea of difference without boundary. So it's something that I talk about in the book specifically as someone who, you know, I'm half white, half Asian. I feel sort of like native to nowhere. Um, I mean, pretty much anyone could say that at this point, but I kind of naturally gravitate toward places and phenomena that can't be reduced to being one thing or being two things. The Pacific Northwest is a bioregion. It's identifiable. It has characteristics. It's not uniform. So, you know, there are things within the bioregion that sort of gradually shift if you go up to Oregon. But in general, you'll sort of see it has a kind of recognizable form. And then if you drive, say, to the Southwest, it's not like you're driving and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm in the desert. It's like, no, there's an hour or more than an hour where you are in something that's sort of weirdly in between. And it, if you're paying attention, like it makes sense. And then there's this gradual transition between them, which is actually how culture and language and even like cuisine, <laughs> right. um, you know, uh, outside of state boundaries, like that is how that actually works. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, and also that those boundaries are very permeable. So I talk also about, you know, just like weather systems in that part of the book of a uh, moment I had of being fascinated with some rain that we got here last year that I had read was coming from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I'm, I've never been to the Philippines, but half my family is from there. So I actually have it. It's right here. <laughs> the rain, the Filipino rain. Like, um, you know, like this is from... The Philippines. I don't know. That's crazy. Um, I heard actually but, viruses are traveling. I mean, this is maybe insane, but I heard that viruses, you know, travel on these like very upper level convection systems. And so you can have a virus from, you know, one part of the continent that ends up, you know, raining down. I did not know. I read this on like MIT Technology <laughs> Review or something. It's like some study. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But so it had some plausible context. But um, yeah, but, yeah, the, but yeah. I mean, or I think about after Chernobyl, there was like this brown cloud or I forget now what it was called. There's like a name for it that, uh, of course, swept over like continental Europe. And people who are our age or maybe a little bit older, they remember the sandbox, all the sand in the sandbox having to be changed after the cloud had was thought to have dissipated because they didn't want children playing in potentially radioactive sand. And all of mm-hmm. the plant beds where the soil was just discarded and who knows, probably shipped to like 
somewhere in Eastern Europe, um, yes. you know, yeah. um, but, uh, but right, these uh, bioregions, they do interlap, they do share, there is crossover, there is seepage. Um, except for islands, yeah. right? For, yeah. Well, islands and then well, invasive species, which right. is a whole other uh, question, I guess. Yeah. That's like, well, places yeah. that aren't permeable are much more susceptible to invasive species coming in completely right, destroying yeah. things. Well, I mean, I think in a sense, Dan, you're speaking about like uh, physical spaces. But and, also, cult- yeah, cultural islands. Right, course, also yeah. cultural islands. So I wonder, like, after having written this book and in your own artistic practice, if you could imagine what a better configuration of the internet, like, what that would look like. I have noticed that there's like a whole raft of books coming out about how to regain your life or your attention from social media um, that are a little more like self-helpy than my book. But that suggests to me that the, maybe the tides of opinion is starting to turn a little mm-hmm, bit definitely. where people are like, this configuration is bad. And I worry that maybe this collective insight that something more decentralized might be better will get hijacked mm-hmm. by some kind of nefarious forces or, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like so, someone who's like not into democracy, but into like neo-monarchy, which is like a thing. Yes, I mean, it, could it, it certainly yeah. is. Could it get could it get more nefarious than it is already though? It's not like we're coming from a utopic system in the first place though. I mean, I it can get worse. <laughs> it can definitely get worse. It would just make me sad if it was something if if it was something getting worse in the guise of it getting better. I guess, I guess, guess it's about ownership say. though, you know? Like is it, it's uh, I mean, if 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 a system is decentralized, though, and there is no owner, it, maybe maybe it was set up by some NRX like maniacs or something. But like, I mean, the platforms we use now are set up by like hyper capitalists, like neoliberal. In the like, name of doing goodness for community. Yeah, it was like you know, take ayahuasca to remind themselves they're God and that they're actually helping the earth. <laughs> I mean, like to me, a big problem with social media is the fact that it's. At the end of the day, even if you have people working within the company who are like, hey, this is really addictive and maybe unethical or whatnot, they ultimately answer to investors. And like, that's like really the only important piece of information to me about, about you know, how and why, you know, from the inside I decide to like design it to be better. I think it's like, as long as your end goal is growth, like that you have to demonstrate growth every single quarter, then you really like, it's going to be sort of too expensive um, financially and in other ways to, to actually do those things. So Having a, just any sort of non-commercial form of social media is interesting to me, just because I think that we had other forms of social media before social media, yeah. um, like the phone. Um, and <laughs> in a park. one of the things I talked about in, in the book is just like remembering what it was like to use the landline in the house that I grew up in, which was not yet a cordless phone. So like you had to go to this one place in the house to pick up the phone and think about who you needed to talk to. And then you'd call that person, you say what you need to say, and then you're done. And I also, in that chapter, talk about community memory, which was the that com- computer kiosk in the 70s in Berkeley, which was similar. Like, it was basically a teletype machine hooked up to a modem, and, like, you would just go, and it's like Craigslist, but in a one place. You had to go to the store and go up the stairs and use it. And so, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I think it's easy to, to lose in all of this, but, like, it's really amazing to be able to be, you know, connected to other people and exchanging information I don't think it's a substitute, again, for like meeting in real time and space, but there's certainly a form of intentionality to that and context around that exchange. And so I tried using Scuttlebutt. It's not literally Scuttlebutt, it's called Patchwork and it runs on Scuttlebutt, but it's uh, like, you know, a small, like early decentralized network example of that. And I was just amazed at how inert it felt. <laughs> like you'd sign in and it's just like very quiet. <laughs> it's just like, oh, 
it's like, oh, like it'd be like going to a landline and picking up the phone and realize and then just like waiting and being like, oh, I actually need to call someone and say something, you know, but you like, it's like you expected to pick up the phone and people would just be like yelling. <laughs> right. then, well, that was like the, par- the party like, line, right? No, but it's true. It's, it's interesting in the context of, because, you know, you log on, as soon as you log on, there's some advertisement. But when you used to pick up the phone, there would just be a dial tone. You wouldn't get three advertisements before you were allowed to call like your friend or your boyfriend or whatever. Yeah. Right. But now it's like every single step, uh, like on the way uh, of attention is, is somehow captured, right? There's no space of, of like, of pause. I, I know you make this point in your book, like, about how labor laws at a certain point said a workday should be eight hours, so you have eight hours to People sleep. People died and, for the eight-hour yeah, workday. Exactly, That's the one yeah. thing I always think about every, like, labor day when people are just, like, pounding, pounding natties on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're exercising their full 24 hours um, of, of leisure for that, oh, that yeah. time. But wait, let me what get to my will. point. So I'm, I'm recapitulating just what you already said in, in the book, but just so we have it as, as as the setup for this. But so, you know, you have eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure to, or to do what one will um, and eight hours of sleep. And that with the changing economy, when one's job was more precarious, it became this thing that people wanted to do is to self-exploit during the other... 16 hours that they had and to maximize every single hour so that you get to a place where you de-incentivize sleep. And this reminds me of Jonathan Crary's 24-7, where we're in this situation, right, where it it becomes actually like a a violence on the body and something that like, you know, you imagine one nation state torturing another nation state by eternal sunshine or like an inability to take back those eight hours. I mean, I don't know if you want to say like how, how we got from point A to point C, D, Z, wherever we are now, how did we, how in your mind did we so willingly seed our personal time and our recuperation time? And this ties into, Dan, what you were talking about, um, maintenance and how we devalued maintenance. We only value Mm -hmm. growth. And this is the quarterly returns. It's not enough to say we're a solvent company. We continue to be a solvent company. We don't have to, you know, speak to uh, investors in quarterly And that is a relatively new thing. It's really a startup logic of growth over that because of course there's lots of mature companies and they you know they give out dividends that's what you right. do if you can't grow anymore right. you, you redistribute the you know the profits and that's like a reasonable thing to do right um, so yeah and so i wonder if you can if you have thought or unless did you want well, to i was just gonna to say it. it's also i just think but i also just think about this this kind of like you look at like yang as a candidate or something and like this proposal and often it's tied with ubi it's like everyone is an entrepreneur which ultimately everybody's already this sort of personal in terms of personal yeah entrepreneurial self but then you know watching we watched theranos last night which (laughs) won't get into but regardless it's just like i can imagine like everyone is elizabeth holmes Right, well, positive no, thinking, lots of attraction. But, not but everyone not is a everyone, psychopath. But not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. So, okay, there's so many different things here, but like maybe this is like a big word cloud of different yeah. ideas. But yeah. like, what is your narrative through this? Like, how do we get from this kind of sane situation where we had an eight hour workday to the situation now where we'd rather be up tweeting at ads? like, or canceling people than dreaming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's just sort of depressing, but I feel like having researched something like the general strike in, in San Francisco is that, like, actually, I feel like the eight-hour work week, and, and also there's just something like the strike is, like, it almost feels like it's a, they were islands of stability <laughs> in, okay. like, a general history of instability. And, uh, you know, like, very quickly after the general strike here, you know, like, all, a lot of the protections, unions were lost like um 
And so then you have an immediate backslide toward, you know, lack of protection for workers. And then you have like the 80s where I forget what the quote is. I can't remember the company, but there's a really great quote in the book where basically this company is like, well, if you're if you're asking us to choose between performance and like stability, then stability is out the window. Like they're basically like, this is all about performance, you know. And so it seems like, you know, it it there are structural things that inform this like deregulation and just like loss of of protections and stability, which causes this atmosphere of fear. I think really like the fear is is the thing that like on a personal level is driving it for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, like it's like a grasping motion almost, right? Like I need, I, I'm, I'm terrified of, of falling off of this tightrope. And I know that if I make one small misstep or if I take one, you know, day for myself, I, I will fall behind in a way that I'll never be able to recuperate. And actually for some people that might be true, which is the really depressing part, you know? And so I think it's sort of just like a, an economic reality. That's the, the explanation for the, the kind of current like time is money thing. But actually something that I've been researching after having written the book is going back like much further and trying to find the origin of the time is money mentality. So I read this really amazing book called The Colonization of Time, which is about the exporting of Western clock time to, to British colonies. It's just amazing. Like you actually see that clash happening and that, it's sort of what I would consider like an invasive species of time that <laughs> um, is like highly unnatural and was, and it's, you know, highly abstract. And it's just kind of like this very rigid framework that's like placed over these pre-existing notions of time and uses for time. Well, we think back, I mean, is it Mumford who theorizes the clock bell in the monastery is the first turning time and monk's labor into a unit that can be quantifiable? So from you know, the bell rings and then it orders the monks like labor in prayer or like sort of emotional, spiritual labor and then at noon and then at six or whatever that, you know, that is. Yeah, that's a, the, it's, it's interesting to think of the origins of that. I mean, I guess it is western right it's not something it comes yeah. from that if that reference is right i think it comes from like the like the christian monasteries is like the yeah. first one he talks about that yeah in the book he talks about the influence of the of that structure in the monastery and then also talks a lot about bells um, <laughs> and where they were and where they were placed and and that like the audible range of the bell was sort uh-huh. of like that the time time was manipulated within that range there's a really amazing example at the end where he talks about i think it's an Cape Town, where there's something called a noon gun, which is this, like, a cannon that fires every day at noon, (laughs) and it's supposed to be, it was originally to, like, have all the ships, like, sink their clocks, Uh but it's, like, but it's, like, such a good image of time as a weapon. Totally. You know? (laughs) Um, and apparently it still functions. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, crazy. We were at the cathedral in the, the church in Munich and it had the clock at the top of the oh, altar. Oh, yeah. This weekend we were in, we were sort of south of Munich in like the south, southern, southern Bavaria. And, uh, and there was, we went into this monastery and it was this like beautiful, like, but kind of like grotesque Rococo interior. And then in the, in this, in this chapel and the very, very center, like above the altar, you would imagine there to be like an ascension scene or something. There's just a clock. It's just a clock. It was a hands, a traditional <laughs> clock. Just one thing that I heard about recently from my friend who grew up in the UK is that apparently there's a clock in, I think, Bristol that has an hour hand, a second hand, and then it has a red hand, and the red hand is local time, um, <laughs> which is the time from before Greenwich Mean Time. Wow. So like before, so like, you know, there, there used to be this sort of gradient of different noons. Right. Like based on observation, right? And then 
when they decided to standardize times for everyone in the world. They, obviously, there had to be time zones, so everyone in the time zone had to set their clocks forward or backward to like fall into this bucket, right? And so I just think that's such an amazing vestige yeah. on that clock of like there used to be this local time, like this is the time that it used to be here. Yeah, I, I was, yeah. and I think it's like when they set Greenwich Mean Time, like there's some area that just like lost an entire day. They just sort of erase the day from history, and they say this this day doesn't count. Like I forget, I forget where I saw this. It was an artist project, I think, where they pointed this out. But uh, well, first I like to talk about the observer class, mm. which to me, I think while reading your book, I sort of thought of this. But there was that I don't know this piece we referenced. It was just a medium piece that we it was, it was sort of map of uh, contemporary online tribes and. and they mentioned the observer class, and it made me think of sort of your idea of standing apart. And I think we kind of consider ourselves as uh, trying to be an observer class where we... <laughs> Wait, but no, we try to think of ourselves being an observer class. We aspire is that... to that anyway. Wait, well, well, is that we try to stand outside of what's happening on platform-based politics and really try to map it and Looks figure out what's going on. I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, being uh, part of an observer class. Uh, if you think possible? there's benefits to thinking of, of, of kind of taking on that role within the online platform politics ecosystem. And also maybe you could expand a bit on those standing apart and what it means for you since it, it seems to be a core aspect of the book. Yeah, observer class. I actually haven't seen that piece, so that's an interesting term. I think it kind of like touches on, I have some guilt about being in something like an observer class. And I mean, I kind of try to address it a bit in the book, but I feel personally like hyper aware of all of the privileges that have allowed me to even like write the book um, or think about that stuff. You know, like I have, my life is exists in a very specific configuration that allows me to even kind of step aside pretty often. I mean, like almost like every day. And it's important to me to recognize that there are some folks for whom that is going to just be a lot harder. For example, like I read Nickel and Dimed finally over the summer while writing this book, you know, and it's like, imagine telling someone from Nickel and Dimed, like, to lie in the grass and do nothing or something that's sort of insulting. And so I, I try to be aware of there's something uh, luxurious about being in something called an observer class. At the same time, I think the reason, one of the things I try to articulate in the part about standing apart is that it is uh, a kind of mental movement. So I think that I would hope that even in the midst of something that you can sort of make a decision, like a psychological decision to kind of just slightly unmoor yourself from your habitual ways of perceiving whatever is going on in that space. So like, I think I have a really depressing example in there of like, if I'm forced to watch an ad, you don't actually know how I'm watching the ad. (laughs) Like I could be, you know, like I could be watching the ad because like in a, like I'm studying the ad versus like watching the ad or like consuming the ad which is like, it's depressing because I'm still watching the ad and I don't have a choice. Yeah, so I think that that's, you know, like when it's just this kind of slight disjuncture from, yeah, habitual ways of looking at something or, or feeling sort of subjected to it, like maybe studying something instead of just taking it in, which I think is certainly useful, you know, on, say, like an online platform where you can actually start to view a lot of things with morbid curiosity from that point of view. In a lot of ways, this 
approach is just like this Kierkegaardian athlete, right? Like I am going to, I understand this is happening and I'm going to create a space between mm-hmm. me and it. And I'm going to like, you know, it's, it's the old like space of the avant-garde also, or the space of the dandy. Like, it, 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 exactly where I was headed. It's, it's the space of the dandy. It's like, how can we like make a derive through this? Or how can we accept that this is the reality, but then find distance from it? This is a classic space of like avant-garde artistic production. I mean, Kierkegaard is another, those two references are sort of colliding in my um, articulation of it. But There's also Nicholas Borio wrote this book, Post-Production. Yeah. There's a word that he uses in it, which is semionaut. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is like, and I I came across that, like, you know, in the context of the of my art, the, the class that I teach, um, because they do a lot of, like, collage and remixing and stuff like that. But recently, that term has started to seem useful to me in this context where because I found myself using the word spelunking a lot (laughs) when I was describing researching the Amazon piece where there I have a folder of screenshots where there's one screenshot like every three seconds and it's just me keeping track of where I am because I'm kind of like going down this rabbit hole and I actually will not remember like how I got there chalk in the labyrinth Um, feels like like leaving markers like on a trail or something totally um and and so that that feels very much like the semio knot to me, where it's like, uh, all right, I'm going in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going yeah, into this, yeah, like, yeah. Field of signs. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, I think though, observer class doesn't mean you just observe from some godly position and not yeah. uh, act. Yeah. I mean, I think of it more as just that you watch without urgency. You know, or with yeah. detachment. I, yeah, yeah. With 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 detachment and, detachment, and 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 also I think that it kind of goes to. And, and I mean, of course, we have values and opinions here, but I think we really are into stepping back, detaching and watching and trying to figure out how the how the system works. And I think there's something, excuse me, seeing seeing the mechanisms of how something operates requires distance and time. And oftentimes I see it's almost like people jumped headfirst into these platforms without allowing themselves a distance and time to understand how the structure of the platforms actually influence and direct the actions they're taking first. I mean, but furthermore, there's this quote in your book, also this Deleuze quote. I mean, how these platforms do work is quite interesting. It's like, to paraphrase, it's like they don't uh, keep you from expressing, but they force you. Repressive forces don't stop people from expressing themselves, but force them to express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also another important thing to note is that um, heightened states of emotion, whether good or bad, are are really seductive, mm-hmm. I think. Like, you, you get in one and you kind of want to stay there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the, I mean, like a, a classic example is, like, if you're angry about something, you kind of want to stay angry. Like, even though you, if you have a good <laughs> friend who's kind of trying to talk you down, like, there's always that moment in the conversation where they're like, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. And you're like, yes, it is. You know, like, you kind of want to just, like, <laughs> wallow in this anger or like or sadness or or happiness like any of these emotional states and i think that there's there's something you know especially after the election and this is kind of like what influenced the essay or the talk really that i gave that ended up becoming the book was that it seems really important to me to disentangle like very justified rage Mm -hmm. um from many many rage filled postings on facebook (laughs) um that are kind of like Generating, you know, like that's great for Facebook, um, right. <laughs> but not not only not really achieving anything, but also just kind of like adding to this cacophony because everyone else is doing the same thing, 
And all of these things are getting tons of likes because everyone is angry and wants to stay angry. And it's just this kind of like collective emotion producing and maintaining, I don't know, morass in a way. Um, And again, it's like I have to be careful to say that like the emotion is totally warranted. But in terms of its expression and, and maybe like what it's doing, it seems like there's more utility in kind of sitting with that emotion, maybe talking to a good friend about it. Um, and like working through it and then stepping back and saying like, okay, what can I do in like an actually intentional way? And maybe that's something that's actually much quieter and less glamorous and takes a longer time than it's going to look good on social media. How do you feel about anonymity online versus say a verified identity? Because I'm, I'm personally kind of on team anonymity or pseudo anonymity because I think it gives people the ability to explore ideas and make up their own mind without necessarily have to having to live every statement down in a eternal present because in your book I, I remember something mentioned about anonymity and then something also mentioned about verified identity so i wonder if structurally you kind of think there's a benefit to one or the other i think anonymity is is important actually for the reason that you just described which is i talk about in the book about how problematic it is to have a system where no one no one wants to be seen changing their mind. Mm. It's like hugely mm-hmm. problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, obviously if you have uh, a permanent record of all of the opinions you've ever had about anything, even momentarily, if we all agree that that was fine, then that's one thing. But we currently live in a system right now where you're sort of, that's considered sort of weak or embarrassing to have changed your mind. And that has to do with personal branding and, and like, you know, trying to appear like a timeless brand. Um, And I think also like multiple identities online is is important. I remember, I don't know if they really do this anymore, but I remember years ago reading about like the Finstagram Uh phenomena, Uh you know, where it's like you have your sort of, uh, as a young person, like you have your official Instagram, but then you have your like fake one, which is just for your friends. And you obviously express yourself differently. And that's already a, a demonstration of the, the idea from one of the books that I talk about, No Sense of Place where the author is kind of using an architectural metaphor to explain context collapse. All your friends and your family and your employees are all now in the same room and every statement you make has to apply to all of, or will be heard by all of them. So either you're going to say the lowest common denominator, boring thing, or you're going to offend somebody. So I think that that's that's a related issue is like being able to have multiple identities. I'm definitely not, wouldn't advocate for the sort of like one absolutely verified permanent identity, which is like Mark Zuckerberg's dream, basically, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, mean, you can, Um, yeah, you can really see the difference uh, in like Facebook, how that operates. And I mean, that was also a shift. And there was, I mean, I remember the witch house days, there was a lot of like pseudonyms, you know, pseudonyms on Facebook, and it was a really different environment then. Um, And the justification was that it would stop trolling and harassment. And I don't think it's really had that effect necessarily, or it's caused all sorts of other issues instead. I don't know. Yeah, because it seems like trolling would be the would be the argument for not having anonymity. Right. But I agree. Like it doesn't really seem to have addressed that. Also, you have things like so in community memory, which was that kiosk in the Berkeley music store in the seventies. So it's basically uh, similar to Craigslist. So you could like leave postings and be like, "Hey, I need a ride to LA" or something, and somebody would you know later come to that same spot and respond. And there was someone on there that is sometimes referred to as like the first internet troll, mm-hmm. um, whose name was Benway. Like that was his username. And he wrote these like really weird sort of like poetic and creepy 
I, I won't even, I can't even summarize it. And they're not, they're not mean to anybody. They're just like basically really weird, but they're kind of great. And the fact that no one knows who that was is enchanting. In yeah, way, totally. To me, you know? Maybe they'll find him by 23andMe DNA. Uh, <laughs> 23andMe like is a scam for platforms to get all your like bio data. Don't believe um, they're real. Wait, but do you have any constructive ideas on how activism can go back from this moment we are at now to something maybe a bit more scope aware and slower and more effective than this sort of like constant peer-to-peer skirmishes of cancellation and policing these massive hyper-capitalistic platforms. Mm-hmm. So at the, I think the end of the last chapter, I try to imagine a utopian social network and it basically ends up being a hybrid of non-commercial social networks of some type, which we don't have. And then all of the tried and true structures of activism in the past. So I call them federated spaces of appearance, like the Hannah Arendt space of appearance, but basically like levels of in-person meetings or just like, even if not in-person meetings, like, you know, two people calling each other on the phone, like something like a little bit more concentrated like that. And, you know, to go back to that essay um, about activists using social media that I described earlier, they do say that, social media was helpful for organizing those spaces of appearance. And so that is one place where it can be really helpful. Like I thought it was really interesting that David Hogg, who is, he was one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting, the high school shooting. um, In his book, he talks about how he was kind of spinning his wheels in the aftermath. Like he was posting a lot, but he was just kind of burning out. And then he was invited to basically a house meeting. And it was at the house meeting that he kind of like got traction and that everyone sort of slept over at this house and it's a very familiar story from the history of activism is like people sleeping over at a house and and being very intensely connected and that that space is a huge advantage for them and and then and that in that space which is closed off from you know in that moment from the public that's where they make their decisions about how to interact with the public or with successively larger contexts. It's amazing from between yeah. like even music industry talk to everyone yeah. we've talked to there's just this trend of like Back to IRL real life community meetups. Yeah. It's I mean, like, the affinity group is like the base unit. I mean, I wonder if we should just really in a bit just get into the more practical aspects of, of refusal in your book. And the uh, I would prefer not to. I really enjoyed that part. I For some reason, I decided je refuse was the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if that's proper French, but it popped in my head from somewhere. And... Um, <laughs> yeah, I like refusing in French. But um, I mean, another point we had we had kind of talked about coming into this is, in a way, your the the book it seems to have a a bit of a complicated relationship with itself in terms of whether it's sort of a cultural criticism book in more of a academic kind of sense, uh, or really is kind of a popular sort of self help uh, book. And I wonder if that was actually a, a struggle, or not a struggle, because I think the book actually works really well. It's in a territory um, between the two. But right, but like, um, yeah. but also just to allow you to t- talk a bit practically about refusal and standing apart and some of these oh, things. Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of like the, the weird sort of in-betweenness of the book, it's partially a reflection of me, and it's also partially a strategy. So it's a reflection of me in that I have always been in the sort of uncomfortable in-between space in one way or another. So, um, I mean, I mentioned it in the introduction, but I'm from Cupertino. Uh, I'm like from the middle of Silicon Valley. 
And so I have a sort of love-hate relationship with it to begin with. And then I mostly am known as a digital artist and I make what would be considered digital work, but it's about the physical world, about like privileging the physical over the digital. And so I've always, I've, I've kind of frequently, I've also been an artist in residence at some very strange places like the dump or the San Francisco planning department. Um, or the internet archive. And I've, I've found that that position can be really productive because you kind of can bring a different perspective to bear on, you know, one or more things that you might be in between. So I think that the book was just sort of going to come out that way anyway, because that's where I am and, and how I think. But I also think it's a strategy because I've noticed that if you make something heterogeneous enough, but not so complicated and obscure that people totally shut off. It prevents them from having a knee-jerk reaction to it. So it's kind of the opposite of 140 characters in a way. So, you know, the book, it is really hard to pin down, right? It's like sort of cultural criticism. It's also about birds. It's also like critique of technology and history in there. It's kind of like, you know, I think about erosion a lot. Like if you have a monoculture in an area or like a farm, industrial farm, the soil just washes away really easily because there's nothing to hold it there. There's no complexity and there's no roots and none of that. And one of my favorite hiking trails here in the East Bay has, you know, along one side of the trail, there's just giant kind of gnarly tree roots of like bay trees and oak trees and lots of rock and shrubs. And, and we just had a really big storm. And you can see how it's like holding all of that stuff, like holding all of the soil like where it is wants to wash away just all and everything is about reduction i mean there's no i personally think there's there's a inseparable sort of aspect of reduction from optimization i mean can if you look at four hour work week or anything about time management (laughs) yeah yeah totally (laughs) i noticed that you're anti-soylent in your talk why just because it tastes bad well what 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 exactly I had it once. I really did not enjoy it. I also just love food, you know? It's like food. Oh, it's great. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, like, I love, like, I think I I have a sentence in there that's like, this is a four-course meal in the age of Soylent. <laughs> like, yeah, give me more food, like more complicated food that requires more chewing. <laughs> Take longer. I don't know. <laughs> Dan has been uh, vaping three meals yeah. a day. For the last <laughs> I just, two yeah, years. Nutri- <laughs> nutritional vaping. That's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> I think that anyone who is looking for a self-help book with like a quick fix who mistakenly buys my book probably needs it the most. (laughs) 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 Um, So, uh, I mean, I would hope it would be, you know, useful to to a lot of people, but especially someone who thinks that there's like a five-step plan to getting your life back from technology because the problem is much bigger than that. Yeah. I I, I mean, I, to you, do you, do you think the NPC meme is, which of course comes from the right, but we've kind of had this conflicted relationship to it of the NPC meme actually being a bit eerily adequate and useful right now because of uh, people who ultimately are just acting in coordination with sort of the code set and the metrics of the platforms. Yeah. Uh, yeah, asking acting as hosts for this sort of attention economy. Huh. I mean, do you, I, I I guess the question is really, do you think people who actually who all of their actions and engagement online really are kind of subservient to modes of communication that these platforms, their structures, their code sets, their metrics set up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, to use a strange example, I teach internet art. And there's a part of the class where I have them present. It's called Internet Niche Phenomena. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so they, you know, they just pick some sort of strange phenomena they've observed online and they present on it. And in one of the presentations, we got into this conversation about Instagram personalities who also are YouTube vloggers and that the students had observed that the Instagram of this person were always very perfect. Mm-hmm. And then the, the video blog would be about like all the things that went wrong. It's like, oh, you know, like my my makeup got messed up and I went to fashion week. I didn't get invited to anything. Like all these things that you think would like not, you know, from a branding perspective are not advantageous. And my hypothesis in class was sort of like, I think, A, like YouTube is acting as the sort of director's cut for the the Instagram content, but also that these people have no remaining interiority. (laughs) Like... So if you have Instagram, then there's the behind the scenes. There's no behind the scenes behind the scenes. Right. <laughs> Just them people, crying you know? and sobbing and stuffing potato chips into their mouth and then purging them or yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, cute, yeah. Carly. Yeah. It's like, you know, like I said, I'm on spring break right now. And I, a couple of days in the past week, have gone up to this area that just, it's not that far from here, but there's no cell reception. I'm not even like hiking. I just, I went up there and like, I just kind of wandered around and sat on a log for a while. And then, you know, I'm telling you about it, but I didn't like, I wasn't like, hey, I'm on a log right now. Like, yeah. you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't really have anything to show for that in terms of like producing some sort of like impression or like expression of, of what I was thinking. Um, actually, at the time, nobody knew that I was there. Um, <laughs> I was completely unnoted. Yeah. And I find that if I don't have several times like a week, like that I kind of start to go crazy uh-huh. um like that that is like my reaffirmation of my interiority that there is uh, there are thoughts and thought processes of mine that only belong to me mm-hmm. and no one else mm-hmm. and will never see the light of day um and that's really important but that's part of a longer kind of thought process and then somewhere down the road you know maybe like years later that connects up with other things that I've talked to people about or other things that I've read. And then, you know, maybe it turns into like an essay, maybe, but that's not even the point. Right. So I I wonder like in a means of sort of like coming to some sort of concluding, some concluding thoughts, of course, the question I'm sure you're going to get asked a lot is, you know, a book called how to do nothing. What do you hope your book to do? And maybe that's a bit of a, you know, platitudinous question, but maybe that coupled with what, what's the reader that you would hope this book, you know, falls into their hands. Yeah. I've, I think what I hope people will get out of the book is, in a lot of ways, just permission to do something that they, I would suspect, instinctually feel they need to do anyway, mm-hmm. um, which is to step away and, and have the right not to express oneself every single moment. In terms of whose hands I hope this book falls into, I definitely hope that activists read it. And more, maybe more broadly, I feel like there's so much energy and intent and, and goodwill um, and heartbreak. And this, all of this is kind of like swirling around and kind of canceling itself out or just kind of this dark fog. And I personally feel paralyzed in that fog. And so I would hope that someone picking up this book, if it can provide some kind of like grounding or clarity for them to then act and also know how to take breaks while acting and, and think and take a break to think about what meaningful act are. It's, I feel like I'm sort of passing the ball in that way. I think that is just so, I mean, so much ingenuity and so much energy out there. And I, this is just sort of my attempt to 
create some grounds for it. I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like an update of a sentiment that's been held, you know, from the time of Lebensraum. Or, I mean, you know, there's been this idea of sort of centering oneself and finding a better signal-to-noise ratio as a human actor in a community network. But it needed new language for for our time. And, you know, it's a different kind of informational topography now. And your book does cut a path through that, which I think is interesting. One other thing I would add is I think a lot of it has to do with rediscovering a sense of agency. Like I think agency is a really important part of this Mm, whole thing. mm -hmm. And as a very weird comparison, um, I have had lucid dreams since I was a kid. Um, So like dreams where you know you're dreaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, like it's rare. It's like once a month or something for me. And I find it really fascinating the moment when your dream becomes lucid. It's It's become this like analogy for me of this process where like when you're having a regular dream, you think you're acting. Right. But you're not like you're being pushed along by the narrative of your dream. You're often like running away from something or something stressful is happening and you're, you're, you're doing all these actions, but you're not actually, you think you're acting from within, but you're not. And then something weird happens. I don't know what the brain, you know, neuroscience of lucid dreams is, but something happens. And now you're basically awake. You know what day it is. Like, you know, probably around what time it is. And you're like fully aware that you're dreaming. And in my experience, like the time of the dream just kind of stops. And you just are wherever you happen to be. And then all of a sudden you have this like weird bodily agency where you're like, oh, like I can like move my arms and I can like walk around and like look at stuff. And you have all this time, you know, and because I have them a lot, I like to do things like just like look at things and see if they're accurate. Cause like, I know that my brain is fabricating it, (laughs) but it's just like the slow time of intentional investigation that feels like such, almost like waking up from the dream. I mean, of course, you haven't woken all the way up. But I think a lot about that transition from being pushed along and thinking that you're acting to an agency that feels like it's coming from within. That's such a clear analogy. So you're totally in support of the eight hours sleeping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not. Ariana Ariana Huffington's uh, pet cause, right? Yeah, that's our subtle, like, our pet cause, too. Like, what is this with, like, I only sleep six hours a night? Like, that dream time, that body reset is important. And all the more so if you're lucky enough to have this lucid dreaming. But also as an analogy for, like, a shift in a kind of activism where you're not just pushed along by crisis, but you actually can say, like, oh, that is a hand in front of me. Hmm, what do I think about that? hand in front of me what will I do next yeah that space It's funny how it's very observer class of you to use your lucid dreams to just examine your own dreams. I mean, I've had them before and I like, I've, I've tried to fly and those kind of things, but uh, I, I should have just looked at the details, I guess. Yeah. I highly recommend it. I used to, I used to not sound like I've moved on, but I used to fly around. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's the, ba- that's basic. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you guys create your MMORPG, I want to. <laughs> yeah. pro, pro, Pro tip for people out there, just uh, get like the lowest, if you don't smoke or anything, get the lowest dose nicotine patch, put it on before you go to sleep and you will have lucid dreams. Yeah. Good trick. Interesting. Uh, you could yeah. put that on the, when they're asking for new tropics on our Patreon. Oh yeah. That yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Models Podcast and huge thank you to Jenny O'Dell for joining us. Her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy is out now, published by Melville House. Time for shout-outs. We'd like to start with everyone who left reviews on our podcast iTunes pages. Thank you, Carl Marx. Thank you, Swag Barf. H2O of Nazareth. 
and b b b b b b b l l l l l. If you'd like to join the ranks of these wonderful people, please consider leaving a review yourself. Shout out to all the contributors of links and tips these past couple weeks. Mike Lind, at Helveticade, Charlie Robin Jones, Stephanie Wakefield, Jack Tarpey, at Spring Break 1944, Alan Miller, Patrick McCarthy, Joshua Citarella, Tom Gall, Alex Scrimger, Anka Deuce, Barnaby McCall, Jean-Luc Villa, Christine LaRiviere, Anonymous, Zier, Lucas Muscatello at Civilization Magazine, Philip Morgan, Lazarence, Joe Hamilton, Sybil Prentice, Relevant.Community, Julia Ferrer, Anonymous, Duncan Wilson, Taylor Wagstaff, Jesse McKee, and all of our new Patreon members. Thank you very, very much. Remember to set newmodels.io as your homepage if you want to stay continually updated. And our first editorial piece with Joshua Citarella just launched, so please head over and check it out. Patreon.com slash newmodels if you want to join our community. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.